0: Welcome to When Pigs Fly. We're uncovering Cincinnati's rich business history from the 1800s to today. We talk to companies to learn the ups and downs of entrepreneurship, what it takes to grow a successful business, and to simply post to future innovation. I'm one of your co-hosts, Patrick Bailey.
1: And I'm your other co-host, Allie Martin. And today we're actually bringing you a special episode because we are going to be introducing you to another podcast. And it's hosted by Eric Hornung and Jay Klaus. And they are the hosts of Upside. And you might ask, what is Upside? Well, Upside is actually a podcast all about startup culture and entrepreneurship outside of Silicon Valley. But our podcast, When Pigs Fly, is a part of the Upside Network.
0: Yes. And we're extremely grateful to both Jay and Eric for helping us get When Pigs Fly rolling. Heck yeah. And we're excited to bring you one of their favorite episodes actually they're one of their it's, favorites
1: <laughs> it's, re- it's really cool so this episode that you're about to hear that they're hosting it's on a company called rally and rally is a platform for buying and selling equity shares in collectible assets mm. so what does that mean you're really buying and sharing and selling collectibles and we're talking anything from like a 1955 porsche 356 speedster for 425 5K, which is the market cap but you can get a share of it for 212 bucks to my goodness baseball cards air jordans you name it so you can buy a share of these huh. collectibles which is a totally different concept
0: which is cool because i definitely cannot afford some of these like market could
1: with a share of these collectibles <laughs>
0: so i think i'm gonna to need to go visit their website after our
1: audience listens to this episode yeah and so let's bring him in uh for this special edition of when peaks fly slash upside
2: so we found what we thought was a good asset to start which was a 1977 lotus esprit and this was uh i believe a 77,000 dollars vehicle we did 38 50 a share i believe i'm not mistaken 2,000 shares and that's a car that in terms of supercars the lotus esprit the series one it's a little bit esoteric but at the same time there was a story that we could tell that made it relevant.
0: The startup investment landscape is changing and world-class companies are being built outside of Silicon Valley. We find them, talk with them and discuss the upside of investing in them. Welcome to Upside. Whoop.
3: Hello, 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 and welcome to the Upside Podcast, the first podcast finding upside outside of Silicon Valley. I'm Eric Hornung, and I'm accompanied by my co-host, Mr. Fast Track it himself, Jay Klaus.
0: Jay, they tell you to step on the gas, and you go. Yeah, we are fast tracking a new course experience over at Smart of Income SPI, and we're flying. You know, we ran uh, we ran a survey to our audience to say would you prefer that we host this course beginning in may or beginning in july and the results said may and we said oh (laughs) okay (laughs) a lot of dominoes to knock over to make that happen but here i am knocking over the dominoes one piece at a time if you were a nascar driver
3: who would like your go-to sponsor be like if you were like who's on the hood who are you
0: excited about having out there Got to be 4 Loco. I feel like that's the most aligned <laughs> to the NASCAR brand. And yeah, I feel like I would be number four and I would be sponsored by 4 Loco. And maybe have like a King Cobra
3: on the back and you can call your car the Hyper Viper. The Hyper Viper. Wow. Yeah,
0: that could be nice. <laughs> Segway that. I'm trying. I'm trying really hard. Well, speaking of fast track, today we are talking to rob petrazzo the co-founder and chief product officer of rally formerly known as rally road rally is a liquid financial marketplace for buying and selling equity shares in ultra rare assets the same way you buy and sell stocks things like american muscle cars eric things like rare trading cards things like rare documents which we'll hear more about in the interview Potentially things like Jay's future NASCAR car, the Hyper Viper. They were the first to turn tangible assets into fractionalized public securities offerings. And they were the first to establish a liquid secondary market for those securities. They classify these offerings, Eric, as IPOs. And they've had more than 200 IPOs with hundreds of thousands of shares of trading cards, classic cars, watches, memorabilia, rare literature, modern collectibles, and more on the platform. Very, very cool. This fits squarely into our thesis of the
3: financialization of everything, Jay. I have been following Rally for a while now. Huge fan of what they're doing, huge fan of what they're building. And I think thematically over the next two, three generations, you're going to see more and more stuff like this around the financialization of everything.
0: Totally agree. And it's just a much more interesting thing to invest in. And if I'm going to live my one life the way that I want to live it, I want to invest in things that I really care about, Eric. And if you want to live your one life the best way you
3: can, you can go check out our friends at Ethos Wealth Management at
0: upside.fm slash ethos, E-T-H-O-S. Rally Road has raised nearly $27 million to date. And as we'll talk about late in this interview, they have just recently acquired a $2 million broadside copy of the Declaration of Independence printed in July 1776. That is bonkers. That's the one with John Hancock, right? Johnny Hancock. That is the one with Johnny Hancock. I wonder what his NASCAR would be. Uh, The old horse and buggy. Maybe he'd have like the Kentucky Derby sponsor it or something. Well, this is going to be a fun conversation here with Rob. He's obviously a later stage founder, but we wanted to talk a lot about Rally and their history especially with the trailblazing they've done in the way of fractionalization. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode. As you listen, you can email us hello at upside.fm or tweet at us at upside.fm. And we'll talk to Rob right after this.
3: We like to start on upside with a background of the guests, but given today's conversation, uh, can you tell us about the history of rally?
2: Yeah, for sure. So Rally is, to give you the the high level, Rally is a platform for buying and selling equity in unique, often kind of one-of-a-kind assets with historical value, with cultural value, a lot of social significance. Every week we run an IPO, uh, multiple IPOs typically on assets like that. So in every instance, a lot of times it's a high value asset. It's one that people really care about. Anything from classic cars where we started in 2017, all the way to dinosaur fossils and crazy political memorabilia and historical memorabilia from sports and all the associated fields around it. We treat each one kind of like a stock where it has its own investors, its own share price. And then at the end of the day, you're a true equity owner by making that investment. And then we facilitate a secondary market 90 days after that IPO closes, allowing for buying and selling of shares through registered broker dealers. So we're really trying to create this two-sided marketplace that allows people to invest in the things they really, really care about.
3: You mentioned equity a couple of times there. Um, I wanna dive down into the tacticals, into the nitty gritty real quick. What are you actually buying on this platform?
2: That's the right question. So you're, uh, you're, the way we look at it is that each asset is its own investment, but the complexity of that and what we've really sort of pioneered is the ability to leverage the legislation that came with the jobs act in 2012 2013 which allows for non-accredited investors to uh, make investments in the types of assets that were typically reserved for the super wealthy or for the people with millions of dollars or a ton of access so it's called reggae plus and what that is is kind of like leveraging crowdfunding where we take each of these individual assets each of these items whether it's a, a baseball card or a piece of political memorabilia or a birkin bag we turn it into its own company, which has its own cap table, its own costs, and we kind of maintain it and store it and manage it on behalf of each investor. So the technical is you're investing in an LLC that owns and operates one asset, and that asset is your investment. And then we maintain that. We do it sort of in a very cost effective way, and we allow for those shares to be tradable under that Reg A Plus legislation.
0: Wild. Well, we're sitting in 2021, and this isn't a crazy concept to me. But I remember in 2016, 2017, when I first heard about you guys, it was like bonkers. So talk to me about the atmosphere then and how this idea even came about that you can say like, let's rip apart, not rip apart physically, but like theoretically assets and let people buy pieces of them.
2: Yeah. I mean, that's the right question. And you're right to have thought about it that way. I think in 20... So 2015, myself, my co-founders, Max and Chris, we've we've known each other for a while and we knew we were going to work together in some capacity. Max was in finance at Barclays doing private placement deals that were way bigger than what we do here. But he understood that structure. And Chris was like a serial entrepreneur an operator. He had been at VCs. He had been a VC before. He understood how this whole process worked in terms of the way you raise money for anything, whether it's an asset or a company. And he's just a, one of the smartest people I've ever met. He's been the smartest kid in my life for 25 years. So he was the person who was going to be able to operate this as a real business. I got lucky in that I, I draw pictures really well, and they allowed me to hang out with them and draw pictures that turned into the app. So all that together, I like to think of it as a 33% of the equation, that's probably way less. But that being said, I'm so... Into storytelling, and I'm so into sort of trying to make people understand what the future, what I believe the future to look like. And in 2015, 20, end of 2014, beginning of 2015, the concept made no sense. The idea that anybody would have a portfolio that had anything other than stocks or their 401k, it seems like it wasn't that long ago, but it was still very foreign to most people. So when we were walking around trying to make people believe that the future wasn't investing in anything and the things you care about and democratizing access, it was still such a new concept. So back then, when everybody started to hear about us a little bit, 2016, let's call it, we had two things that we were trying to prove. One was that alternative assets like vintage baseball cards and like even dinosaur fossils or meteorites or all these crazy esoteric assets that that would potentially be a part of a portfolio or retail portfolio by the time everything was said and done. The second part that we wanted to prove was that Rally was a place that you would go to put those assets into your portfolio. We got a little bit lucky and every, every business, every startup, every company has to get a little bit of luck. And that 2015 was this moment in time where a couple of things are starting to converge. Communication was changing dramatically. So the way you talk to friends and the way group chats are starting to work and the way Instagram was really at peak and sort of you know communicating your life to others and having those small groups realize that they were huge, they were way bigger than they thought and Reddit was starting to get crazy at that point too. The other side of it was that you had the Robinhoods of the world, the Coinbases, crypto was starting the year in 2015 at an all time high and had a lot of volatility in 2015, but a lot of coverage too. So people were starting to look at that as an alternative asset. All those things together, the proliferation of Robinhood and the way that that sort of took over the world 2015 and 2016, it made retail investors understand there was more than just what they were given. There was more than their 401k. That was the first lane where it stopped in the end of 20. sort of, I would say the middle of 2016, end of 2016. People were way more open to the idea. And it wasn't just me and Chris and Max running around like you know, like Doc Brown screaming in Back to the Future, like, trust me, like, it's I, we saw the future and we felt like everyone else started to see it a little bit too by the end of that year. What was the
0: first item you guys created?
2: We started with cars and Classic Cars was this space that had a massive enthusiast group, but it was a lot of it was sort of, on reality TV and the auction results were getting published everywhere and everybody was kind of following the money but no one had any idea what to do or how to buy a classic car. Nobody would have bought that because you had to put it in a garage and store it and roll the tires and there's so much complexity that goes around that. So for us, starting with classic cars was like the hardest asset class. But it was also one that translates everywhere into fashion, into the sneakers that you wear, into the conversations that happen, into the design that goes into architecture and all the new vehicles. Everybody looks to the past, to classic cars, and to some of these vintage designs and the way they build anything now. So we found what we thought was a good asset to start, which was a 1977 Lotus Esprit, and this was, uh I believe a $77,000 vehicle. We did 38.50 a share, I believe. If I'm not mistaken, 2,000 shares. And that's a car that, in terms of supercars, the Lotus Esprit, this Series 1, it's a little bit esoteric, but at the same time, there was a story that we could tell that made it relevant, and that Elon Musk really built Tesla on the heels of Lotus. And this particular car and the earlier Roadsters that came with it was really the inspiration for, for how he built that first Roadster and how he kind of built the company. And they were using Tesla engineers overseas for the first seven or eight years of that company, too. So we had this thing that we knew or we believed, was a good investment because it was kind of undervalued relative to the other supercars of that era. And it was also one that even though it was from 1977, had roots in you know, 2015, 2016, 2017. So we ran that IPO. It took around all in almost a year to get approved by the SEC. And then it took us around three months to fund that start to finish. So you fast forward to now with 12 asset classes and IPOs that sell out in minutes sometimes and a really active secondary market. And it it happened really quickly and really slow, kind of at the same time over the last four or five years.
0: To get a little bit more clarification on timeline, you know, besides teaching people like, hey, this is an alternative asset you can buy that's going to be valuable. You're also showing up on the doorstep of the SEC saying, "Hey, this is a security," and they're like, "No, that's a 1977 Lotus Esprit." How yeah. did that process work, and when did you socialize the concept to people versus get the process started with the SEC?
2: Yeah, so we another thank God I have smart people around us. Chris and Max knew immediately we should talk to as many lawyers as possible, and I was I was that made no sense to me. I was like, let's just start building stuff, but that's the 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 build things fast and break stuff mantra. It only works for social media. It doesn't work for, for anything in a regulated industry. So really early on, we brought in people who understood the regulatory construct better than we did. And that was like the first big upfront cost for us as a business were in making sure that you know lawyers were paid and that the right paperwork was in place and using you know, real well-established people as opposed to cut rate, you know, not to take anything away from lawyers, but we weren't calling 1-800 numbers to find who, the person to, to communicate with the SEC on our behalf. And that was the the smartest investment we made early on. So we had a really good feel early for something that a few of the other people had done. So the Kickstarters, the Indiegogos, some of the the early kind of um, debt financing platforms, they had taken a similar approach. That being said, you know, Chris and Max wrote the majority of that first offering circular from scratch. So now you have 20 or 30 potential players in the space and the stuff that they've done is literally being taught at courses at NYU and Max spoke at MIT about it. And it's always a situation now where, that template that that was written early on, which is, you know, now is a 185-page document. I think inside of our app, start to finish, was the bulk of the work for the first year of the business. They let me kind of run and just build the app, start to finish, and come back in a place where we already had that regulatory approval in place. And it was time to kind of get moving really quickly.
3: You mentioned 20, 30 other players who kind of ran off your guys' back. I know that there's kind of this big trend right now around fractionalization of assets in general. What can't be fractionalized?
2: It's a tough question to answer because there's really, there's nothing that can't be fractionalized. The way we think about it is that anytime you have a really enthusiastic group, whether it's big or small, and you have assets that have access that's kind of either moved away or was never there for the group that cares about it most, that's the space we want to be in. And I think that where we've seen a lot of the the most activity in the app are in the spaces that we didn't necessarily look at as the ones that would be the most popular. So when we think about First edition literature, and you're talking about you know things that people would know, like *Great Gatsby*, and you know uh, some and a bunch of Shakespeare. Like the pieces that we have on the app right now are the ones that people would really know well. But you know, open right now is a, a *Wizard of Oz*, the original first edition, which it turns out a lot of people on our on our platform didn't know that that was a book first. And it also turned out that the questions and the communication and sort of the engagement we get around a piece like that. It's almost as crazy as it is around, you know, Mickey Mantle rookie card. So what we've always tried to do when we think about like what can we fractionalize, it's more like a a a what should we, and we let the user base take us in that direction. Because again, we look at each one of these these verticals that we're in now, each of these categories, it's almost like its own little subreddit. And it's hard for me to look at that and say, uh, that that world might be too small for us to go into because that group, especially the smaller it is, it tends to be like the more engaged and they're the people that really understand it and want this access and it opens up a lane for a lot more people to understand it when you have that community within each of those asset classes.
3: Let's talk more about that concept, that framework of a subreddit. You guys dropped Road from Rally Road and made the conscious decision. It sounds like to go horizontal where you can have all these different subreddits on the platform, but there's a lot of competitors that are springing up that are niche and vertical. So why not focus on cars and be like the number one person in fractionalized cars versus try to go broad?
2: Yeah, you know, we've always thought about it in that A, when we started building this, we were like, this is a novel concept. How has this not been done yet? That was part of it. Once we started getting down that pathway, we knew it was going to take a long time and we kind of overthought it a little bit. So the name Rally Road in itself was this like, quadruple entendre where it, it to us, we knew it was gonna be interpreted as cars and that was a little bit of our moat. But when we put that on paper and the way we trademarked it, and the way we talked about it in-house is that it was the other Wall Street. The idea was that like Rally Road isn't Wall Street. It's not a place where there's big buildings and everything's intimidating and everybody's wearing suits. It's probably somewhere in the middle of the country where the people just kind of get together, think about something they love, and they kind of put their money where their mouth is. And that was how we always thought about it. And then rallying people together and the rally that goes with the market, we're like, God, this is perfect. It turns out the domain was super expensive. So we kept the RD as long as we possibly could. But it's also a situation where we always looked at it as those subreddits. And I always kind of built this in a way that I thought, there's no reason that somebody should come in knowing classic cars and knowing that well And the generation that exists right now is so into information and they're all so self-taught. And we have the ability to go to YouTube or go and learn anything. Like you can go anywhere and learn anything. And you could do that in a way that the deep dive didn't really, it existed a decade ago, but not the same way it does now. So when we think about the journey of our user and the journey of an investor, we've seen it firsthand in that they diversify really quickly. So someone might come into the app and it might be a car. It might be a 1985 Ferrari Tesserosa. And that's something that they might know every single thing about. Then they start looking around the app a little bit and they see some of the stories that we tell within those asset portals. Then you realize, all right, that was actually Michael Jordan's favorite car. And that was one where there's a really iconic picture of him pulling into the arena with the MJ air plates on it. It's like, oh, what is this? The Michael Jordan rookie card. Oh, there's only 300 of those. That's kind of similar to the the flying mirror version of the Tesserosa. And they kind of find that shared DNA really quickly and they diversify quickly, because now you have so many users on our platform who look to rotate in and out of things or build that diversified portfolio. And we always want to make that possible. And we, that was a bet that we made that it would happen and it has happened. So for us, it's always about pushing the envelope when it comes to new asset classes and activating the, the new group that comes into the app that might look at it as their subreddit, but also open up that opportunity for the rest of the community who might be looking at it from a distance.
0: How would you describe your user base proportionally In terms of people who are like shrewd capitalists and seeing this as a money-making opportunity versus purely for the love of it, like how do you think about those segments?
2: That's a that's a good question that a lot of people don't ever ask us. That's never come up. Shockingly, that's never come up in any investor meeting either. That's a really good question. (laughs) This is the way I think about it: is that everybody looks at this as a, a financial product to a certain degree. But we've always looked at what we do, and we've called it this a lot internally. We don't do it as much externally, but it's passion-led investing, where the idea is that passion leads you somewhere. And it might be something as simple as a pretty picture or something you recognize that has nostalgia from when you were a kid. But once they get inside the app and they start looking around, we've put all the financial information front of mind the same way we've put all those pretty pictures and all the stuff that relates back to childhood for some of these assets in the same place. So they might be led in by passion, but they really quickly become somebody who's paying attention to this from a financial perspective. But at the same time, I've always looked at this as as different than finance. And even, you know, Max, who was at Barclays and, and Lehman, he did this for 15 years. He was like my friend who wore a suit to work every day, but he wasn't that guy, you know what I mean? And we've always tried to look at it at what we do the same way in that, you know, what you do on weekends, it defines you way better than what you do for a job. If you work in finance and you're wearing a Patagonia vest every day, I'm not gonna, I can't make fun of you. I can't talk crazy. That's that's a lot of my friends too. You know what I mean? But at the same time, you're definitely passionate about something. And I think a lot of those people who look at this and say like that's just a financial instrument, those are the people who are still in that world where finance is a zero sum game and it's just make money by any means. And we're just not that platform and don't want to be that platform. I think we've done a good job of balancing it where it's a it's a fintech app and it's a fintech product, but at the same time, it's a, it's a method of sort of surfacing really interesting information and stories around these assets that do hold value. And if you want to put some money to work, you can. And that's part of why we've never had any minimums on the platform too, is the idea that if you want to put 25 bucks to work in the thing you care about, you should be able to do that. So we want to afford that opportunity.
0: I would imagine you can see some of this behavior play out in in the data. You know, I would assume the people who are there like using this as a financial instrument are probably their their trading velocity is probably higher than the typical user. So, what can you tell us about the behaviors you're seeing in terms of this passion led investing? Are people buying and holding or a lot of people trying to flip in and out of stuff or what type of trends do you see?
2: It's funny cuz like we see a lot on Twitter too. So, we have, you know, the the platform is big enough now with, you know, hundreds of thousands of users and so much activity happening in the app every single day. It's not the same way it used to be in in 2016 when somebody would call the customer service line and like I would pick it up and they would want to spend a spend like a thousand dollars and it was still shocking to me to hear that. You know, like that, and that I still have that. When I see anybody invest when I'm opening the admin system, it's like there's a bunch of investments coming and It's still shocking to me that we built something that really resonates with so many people. And that's kind of what we always wanted to do. So it's it's shocking, but it's also so rewarding to see it. But it's also a situation where, you know, we see so much of this play out on social media now too, where yeah, people saying like I didn't think I was going to invest today on Rally and I bought two of these or three of these or five of these. And I think that is that passion element where we've been able to engage people in such a way that they're basically saying like, I saw that band first. And that was how we've always looked at it. Is like, you know, everybody wants to say that they were there in that bar when it was a 30, you know, it was 35 people. And it's like, yeah, and now that's the Grateful Dead. You know what I mean? Like some crazy thing. Like there's There's always like, everybody wants that sort of to be a futurist and to see the future and see around the corner and we want to provide that opportunity. So what we've seen more than anything else is that that diversification happens quick. So when you have, you know, portfolios that have four to five assets on average and you have a 28-year-old average investor and you have sort of, you know, making their first investment really quickly and then the second investment in in you know, seven or eight days later, let's say, that to us signals that they're engaged in the platform, they want to learn more and they want to diversify quicker. So for us, we've always looked at it like assets will lead, the asset stories lead. And then the trading component of it allows you to potentially you know see where the market is, engage where it is. But we have very few situations where there's day traders on the platform. and we've that's not something that we we monitor super closely, but it's also something that we know we're in it in a lot of cases, we believe in these assets and we're trying to buy things that are relevant not just now but will be relevant in the future and and really hold value both from nostalgia and and that and that kind of emotional standpoint but also are the best in class of the museum quality that tend to sort of you know, move without correlation to, to even each other or to the markets.
3: I'm gonna take us away from the passion side real quick and into the financial side, because I do wear a suit uh, to work every single day.
2: I wear, I saw, I, listen, there was a year in 20, <laughs> I think it was 2017, I went, asked my girlfriend, I went on a crazy suit kick and I bought like 30 suits. I don't even, I wear a suit once a year, so I'm not against it at all, I love suits.
3: So if if is kind of the infrastructure for this alternative asset universe, has anyone built like an application layer on top of it? And in finance, that would be like a, a hedge fund or a mutual fund or an ETF or some sort of financial vehicle for investing in a subset of the assets on the platform?
2: Yeah, there are a couple that are starting to spring up now. And I think, again, that goes back to that validation question and that when we started this, it was like, yeah, alternative answers are cool, but that's this thing that is never going to be retail. I think now in the last year and a half or two years, let's call it, as the on-ramps become more obvious and as those become more apparent and get built by by us and some of the companies around us and other spaces, I think it's become obvious that there's something there. And like everything else, when that when that institutional money starts to come in and the bigger checks start to take, a, a little bit, take it a little more seriously and start thinking less about that total addressable market... In individual units, and start thinking about it more as a bucket of alternative assets that everybody really gets and gravitates towards. You start to see those pop up. So it's really early, and you know people come to us all the time, and they have great ideas. They want to build on top of what we do. We're kind of head down building out what we have right now before we get to that point. But that being said, the thought that there won't be sort of buckets of assets, or you know the layers that live on top of the rallies, or or complementary to the rallies that allow people to sort of hit that one button investor in our IRA or investor investment advisor in a bucket of or ETF that lives as a sidecar to what we do. I think that's that's a pretty obvious direction that that everybody's going to be going at a certain point for sure.
3: It feels like historically there's been this thing called the 60-40 portfolio, 60% equities, 40% debt. And I feel like in the last five years, we've seen access for the average investor into private markets expand dramatically uh, into alternative assets, into real estate, into collectibles. Do you have any sense for like how that historical portfolio allocation is going to change over the next 20, 30, 40 years?
2: It's hard to see the future. Like everybody wants, again, like I love the idea that I, I could pretend I'm a futurist and a technologist and like I know exactly where everything's going. But the big obvious inflection point to me is happening right now as we speak. There's, you know, I know 18 and 19 year olds I trying to keep as many sort of young, ambitious, smart you know, people around me who really understand and can see around the corners that I can't that are you know 80% net worth in crazy altcoins that I've never even heard of and I don't even know where to go to trade them. And they're winning, you know what I mean? So it's hard. Granted, we're in a bull market for a lot of things right now. It's hard for me to look at what Gen Z is doing. And even as like a tail end of a millennial myself, seeing some of the younger millennials, it's hard for me to not look at them and say the future when it comes to alternatives is way closer to sort of 50-50 than it is you know, 80-20 or 90-10. Only because the alternatives, when I was sort of hearing that in 2009, 2010, when I first got a couple of checks and could like invest real money. And when I say real, I'm talking about thousands of dollars instead of hundreds. The options were so few. It was an ETF, it was options, and it was equities. And getting real estate meant buying a building or buying a home somewhere. And that just was out of the question for me, especially in New York. And sort of diversification didn't really mean anything. To me, it was like buying a few pairs of sneakers that I was going to wear. Maybe one or two of those would go up in value. It made no sense... To think that alternative assets would be what they are now if i'm if i'm 19 or 20 years old right now and i have a little bit of financial education that i probably taught myself and i'm making a little bit of money on these things that like the older generation knows nothing about it's impossible for me to think that's not going to accelerate dramatically into the future and i think that me getting into my late 30s i'm thinking about this as i wish i would have done it earlier but the on-ramps exist too so it's hard like i was in my office this weekend and my dad came by And this is absolutely a true story and he pulled up in the middle of Lafayette Street and got out of his car just to hang out. And he's wearing a Ovedia tracksuit head to toe. And he's got on like, you know, white New Balances that like cool guy, Ami Leondor New Balances. And he's got his Robinhood account out. And he's like, shit, I wish I held on to that Dogecoin instead of selling it at 26. And I'm talking, I was like, what world are we living in right now? And it articulated this moment in time so specifically in that. This 19-year-old's doing something I don't know about. My 60-year-old dad's doing something I don't really know about. And everything in between has no choice but to catch up and to think that the portfolio of the future won't be a little bit of everything and will just be what the safe bets looked like in the past, I think is off the table at this point.
0: We are in this bull market. Eric taught me the word frothy. Uh, Very frothy, yes. What what, <laughs> what happens if that turns? Do alternative assets, are they the first to go? Or are they the most... Is that what people are going to hold on to the most?
2: You know what? It's It's... It's a weird thing to think about, because I think that a lot of what gets lost in what's been happening and in the bull, in the bull markets that there'll be moments of consolidation and there'll be ups and downs along the way. But I think what we've seen in the last call it two years, let's say, or a year and a half give or take, is that it's not necessarily there's pockets that get killed on a on a weekly basis and a lot of those, like those those weird altcoins and some of the really fringe investments. I think that this generation what's crazy different not just that retail is leading so much of this charge but that the idea of like buying the dip is is an absolute lifestyle decision it has nothing to do with the way people think about finance they just see it as an opportunity because this generation more than any other generation myself included has the ability to zoom out in a way that I never did so in, in 2008 2009 like I lost every single dollar and that was because of selling at the bottom not because it was not because I was I was I was thinking about the future. It was an immediate emotional response. And these kids have no emotion now. When they trade and when they sort of make investments, they know that they just want to sort of you know get their cost basis to a point that makes sense for them and hold on to it for the future and get their money back. That's one big difference. The alternative asset side of that, I think a lot of what we have right now, what we're seeing is that the information that's available on Twitter and a lot of other places is different than it was back then too. So 2008, 2009, you were... You had to listen to what CNBC was telling you a little bit, and there was only so many places you can learn what was actually happening and what the macro trends were and what the future might look like, and get told to kind of zoom out and think about the future. I think that so many of these asset classes now, it's not just new liquidity that's coming into the market driving these prices. It's people that really understand these assets. They understand the history of it. A uh, you know a Mickey Mantle rookie card has seventy years of history, whereas any you know how long has Tesla been on been listed? eight years, 90, 10 years, I don't even know. I the average lifespan of a company is 15 years on any exchange. So it's hard for me to think about what the future looks like and not think that this new retail generation, when that dip does happen, when that pullback does happen, the rug pulls are gonna look and feel way different than they used to. I think a lot of these assets with history and with this this new investor as the ability to zoom out and see that history will potentially take it as an opportunity to educate themselves on what it could do in the future and potentially reload if they had the opportunity to do so.
0: That history is what's really interesting to me about Rally. And we're living in a moment now where NFTs are really big and NFTs don't really have any history, but could be an asset that you fractionalize. How are you guys at Rally thinking about NFTs?
2: Uh, what's an NFT? Uh,
0: non-fungible token. It's a digital asset.
2: Ah, uh, nah, I'm joking. Okay. I was it's like, weird. maybe he doesn't know. Maybe he's not thinking about it. Sometimes my deadpan humor works. That, that was a stupid one though. But in all seriousness, <laughs> like, you know, NFTs are weird because it's I think a lot of people look at like look at everything as a crazy bubble right now and I think that it's not it's not out of the out of it's not crazy to say that 99% of NFT projects will probably go to zero. I think it feels a lot like like the ICO boom felt like in 2017 and if you go back to me right now again back to that theme where it's like everybody wants to be first, everybody wants to be a futurist, nobody wants to miss out. I think you have a lot of young super smart technologists who have made a little bit of money and a lot of bit of money in some cases this year. And they're rotating out of the cryptos they made their money in, putting it into NFTs. And a lot of these projects continue to sort of pop up and, and move really quickly because that cycle of information happens so quick. At the same time, it's hard for me to not look at it as having staying power at this point because a lot of the same reasons that we exist and the reason that we sort of you know, were able to make our name in 2016, 2017 and get people to believe it, and that people are willing to take more risks, and it's a very, very risk on trade right now for a lot of people, into the things that they care about. So you know, I went to school, I went to art school. And the idea was that I was going to come out of school and be an artist, like an actual working artist and, and paint for a living. But that just wasn't, it wasn't, gonna I wasn't good enough and it wasn't going to happen anyway because that's not a job. It was, I, especially in 2000, you know, 2006, that wasn't a job. You had to be a designer. But if I had the ability to create, build my community and then be able to sort of, you know, feed myself off that community and do it in a way that we all did it together, I can't see reason I wouldn't have tried that, especially as technology was sort of taking shape. And that's what we're seeing now is that, this whole creator class is able to engage community and community is willing to spend on the things they care about. So NFTs are not that dissimilar from what we do in terms of the way that you engage emotion. The financial returns and the history of it might be a little bit different, but I think there's a lot of interesting projects that'll have sort of this equity aspect and a utility aspect that'll stick around. And I think those are the spaces that we always look at. We don't go into any sort of asset class without significant domain expertise. And I think that NFTs, as we've sort of been paying attention to them for probably... You know, I keep it real, like six to eight months. There's a lot of smart people around us who've been preaching the, the benefits of it and where it's going to be for years at this point. So for us to think about the conversation we had a year and a half ago or two years ago around what digital would be and what tokenization would look like, it's happening now way quicker than I think a lot of people expected in terms of velocity. But it's a space that we're definitely keeping our eye on. And when the right project pops up that makes sense for Rally, I'm sure it'll be something that's on the platform.
0: I want to dive into that a little bit more because we haven't uh, given listeners enough of a taste of the breadth of what's on this platform. So talk to me about some of the projects that you guys have on the platform now and coming up, uh, if you're able to say that you're excited about.
2: Yeah, so I mean, every week is something new. So, you know, this particular week is the 1999 first edition uh, Pokemon PSA 10 set. So this is the Pokemon set that everybody had played with, destroyed, traded and now looking back, I, I wish I personally would have kept every single card and I'm sure a lot of people do too. So there's 11 registered PSA 10 sets of which Rally has two at this point. And it's one that hits on so much of the emotion and so much of the the nostalgia that goes along with the late 90s and the early 2000s. But it's also something from a rarity standpoint, from an art standpoint, we look at as a really interesting asset that will have legs It's a franchise that we believe will last forever too in terms of just the way Pokemon's looked at, not necessarily this set, but Pokemon in general. So that kind of hit on a lot of points for us. And then... You look at the other categories that we have right now, whether it's classic cars, wine and whiskey, comic books, first edition literature, all the political and space history, watches, collectible technology. That to us is kind of hits on all these points where you have history, you have sort of uh, something that's gotten out of reach in a lot of cases, but also it's a look at what the future might be. So the Apple One computer, which one of those first sort of hand-built Steve Jobs and Woz computers, the one that, that birthed the equivalent of personal computing, the way I think about it, and a lot of people think about it, was an IPO that we ran a couple of weeks ago, eight hundred twenty-five thousand dollars. Really unique example, one of twenty. Uh, similarly, you know, when we go into an asset class, we always have these these watermark, these kind of benchmark. We want this. This makes the most sense for us. Let's go after it. One of those was the Declaration of Independence, which it sounds insane to say like we got a Declaration of Independence, but I think a lot of people don't don't realize that there was the original Declaration of Independence is the is on permanent display in the National Archives Museum in D.C with the constitution the bill of rights there are these broadside copies that were the equivalent of the first copies made that were used especially within the colonies to let everybody know that independence was achieved and it was something that you know these first 1776 editions one of the ones that we have a uh, known as a Walsh 15 copy one of only a handful that have ever come to market. And that's an IPO that we're running in the next month or so, end of May. And that's one that's really, really interesting. A $2 million asset, the most expensive asset we've ever done. But also one that when you think about history, you think about of the last 250 years, something that shaped so much of what we see today. And you know, a lot of polarization around it and for better or worse is something that's that's within sort of the, the annals of time and history. And it's one that we always looked at as a, as a potential heirloom benchmark piece for us that we acquired a couple months ago
3: so much of what you're talking about is physical like it's it's something you can touch something you can feel and i remember when i lived in new york you guys launched a showroom i believe in uh, soho or west village or something can you just talk about the decision like to launch a showroom for a digital platform and how people interact with this physical thing on the platform
2: yeah so That tactile element and bringing it to life was part of kind of proving that alternative assets are real. I think that the first, when we started this and it was cars, the question that we got all the time that we don't get as much anymore now was, well, do I get to drive it? And our response to that (laughs) always, like, it's a weird, it's like, no, you don't get to drive it, but I'll explain to you why. And here's the reasoning behind it. And for us, we always looked at it like, there's the museum quality version of something, the one that we wanna maintain and, and ensure is available to future generations. And it's the one that has all the bells and whistles, but it's also the one that, if you were to keep it and have it yourself and drive it, you're talking about you know potentially tens of thousands of dollars in maintenance just to keep it and never drive it. And we're able to do that at scale in a way where you can have the one that you drive, and maybe it's the lower quality version a lower price version. And in your portfolio, the equity element is gonna be the best version or the museum quality version. So you have the utility and you have the equity if you really want that. The same thing exists for for so many baseball cards. If you want, you know, a PSA ten version of a Michael Jordan rookie card and that's a, a five hundred thousand dollars card, that's one world that might be unavailable to the majority of people and is, and only three hundred of those exist. But there's PSA nine all the way down to one that potentially, you know, meet the threshold for what you want and for that utility aspect, and you can potentially afford it as well. So when we did our showroom, the first one we did was a pop-up, and it was on Wooster Street. And it was in a random garage. We just drove two cars into it and opened the garage door that was in the front of this gallery space that we rented out. And we did it for a weekend in 2017, right around Thanksgiving. It was a, we got lucky. It was really good weather. A bunch we didn't really advertise. It. We had no budget. A bunch of people walked in and asked a ton of great questions. So we always knew from that point forward, when we sort of you know have our next office space, a we want to be in a, a high population, high traffic area. But B, bringing this stuff to life and making sure people understand exactly what it is, not just investors or potential users, but everybody was going to be an important part of the platform. So we opened our second space as our full-time retail space. I'm actually in it right now because we're getting ready to redo it on Lafayette Street uh, in between Prince and Spring, right below our office space. So. That to us, too, in terms of neighborhood. It was, you know, a one block south of Supreme and all the, the streetwear stores everybody knows. And it's one block north of, you know, Jack's Wife Frida and all the restaurants that get insane and you can barely walk down the block during the summer. So we wanted to put it in a space that had tourists, that had locals, that had people who really understood, you know, uh, culture and knew what was going on in the city that would come here for a specific experience and just open the doors. So when you walk into the showroom, there's a car that sits in the middle, which right now is a a 1980s-era James Bond, Aston Martin. The walls have a bunch of glass cases with kind of infinity mirror setups that have, you know, Mickey Mantle's rookie card and one of the rarest Birkin bags in the world and a Michael Jordan game-worn jersey. There's some iPads and some things you can interact with, but at the same time, the whole goal was to have somebody walk in and say, what is this? And we get that every day. So we've been closed for COVID for a while now, but right, we're about to reopen and get ready to expand and potentially go into other places and do some pop-ups. But that, to us, was the win. When you get a bunch of people to walk in, they just happen to be walking by on Lafayette Street. Maybe they were going to Louis Vuitton, or maybe they were just going to you know, Warby Parker, or maybe they were just going, sort of walking around, trying to get a feel for what was going on in the neighborhood and just people watching. The doors are open, and there's a half-million-dollar a million dollar car sitting in the middle, and nobody's really pressuring you to come in. They just kind of wander in, say what is this we have a conversation with them and then we started charting it they were staying on average for like 19 minutes once they asked that first question so that to us was the win just getting the conversation going getting the word out and having people leave with that look on their face like what did i just see and then finding their way back to the app eventually and that's always been a really important part of the platform for us
0: well just to add on to that the stuff that's not on display or even when it is on display how much do you guys have invested in security and protection of these assets it's got to be insane
2: yeah, I mean, again, we're really lucky in that we do this at scale, so we get a little bit lucky, and that we have we have two purpose-built facilities. One is in New Jersey, and that's where all of our cars are located. Another one is in Delaware, and that's a, uh, the equivalent of a vault that has the majority of our assets. And it's a space that's set up in a way with you know 24-hour security and it's you know nonstop protection. And it's something even when we go in and out, it's like a crazy protocol, like we're traveling to another country to just get into the space at certain times. And it's also something that you know when we're thinking about the future of this business the ability to sort of do all those things without sort of passing on costs was always a really important part of what we do. It just so happens that now in our, in our secure space, we have, you know, the last floor of the Staples Center that Kobe played on, which is a, you know, a a 12 foot or 18 foot piece of wood. And then you also have this, you know, Honus Wagner card, all these small things that are potentially just as valuable. Keeping all those in one place was a really important part at least the way we looked at it, because we want that to be sort of an experience center at a certain point. And I think we will sort of do more with those assets across the country as things start to reopen.
3: What's the crown jewel? Like, what's the thing that you haven't been able to get yet that you really want to get?
2: Man, that's a good question. I think there's a few. There's stuff for me personally that's like the, the childhood stuff that I really, that is like the grail type stuff. One of them that we got, we have the we have what would be considered by many to be the best example of an early Super Mario Brothers. And that's one that, you know, 40 million, 41 million, 42 million, something like that game sold. I don't know anybody that got that game and didn't rip it open and play it immediately. So for anyone to keep that sealed in the condition of the one that we have it is absolutely absurd to me. So that was one that I always think about. Is like, I can't believe we got this type of situation. But then we start thinking about the future of this platform and kind of where we want to go and what we want to have. There's a couple of kind of Super Bowl type rings that I'm thinking about that are really interesting. There's some intangible assets that I'm thinking about that are really interesting. And then I think about, you know, being in New York and having been in New York my whole life, you walk down any street at any time of day. And now my eyes are just always looking around. So I'm looking at somebody walking by with like a really ridiculous watch that I, I know what the value is. And we haven't been able to get that particular one yet because we're trying to find the right one. And then you see like a piece of street art on a wall. And it's like, man, getting something specific from that artist for our platform would be really awesome. Then I started thinking about like A cab will drive by and it's like, damn, those cab medallions got really beat up. That might be a good play to just buy a bunch of those medallions right now. It's impossible for me to not look at everything happening at all times and think about it as an asset now because from a collectible standpoint, I've personally collected so many weird, obscure things, not even thinking about the value to look at everything that's happening, especially in New York, where it's this sort of hub of culture and a million different things happening. I want to securitize everything. I want I want to democratize every single asset that has a fan base and people that care about it and be able to bring that to people and sort of bring it to life and tell the story behind it. So it's impossible for me to pick one thing at this point when I feel like I'm so surrounded by it at all times.
0: On this show, we talked to a lot of investors who, you know, they see a hundred deals, they invest in one to 10 companies. You and your partners are in some ways investors in this way. Do you guys have like investment meetings where you pitch some of these assets to each other to say, we should throw down on this?
2: Yeah, all the time. Unfortunately, I don't have the same pull I used to hear because it's we have a lot of younger, smarter people who are in charge of that now. But it's, you know, we have a we have this very specific checklist that we go through when we want an asset and when we target something. And it's got all the tangible must-haves. And if it was like a car, it'd be the, you know, specific mileage, specific provenance. It's got to sort of have, you know, all the doors stamped with the same serial number, all the basic stuff you would look for. But also, we want to make sure it's something that's, that's culturally relevant and will be relevant in the future. So, that's where the intuition comes in. So, we use a mix of data, a mix of understanding these markets, and we have a great group around us of advisors and people we keep close to the company who have roots in these specific asset classes and in these verticals to kind of walk us through a lot of that stuff. But, you know, when we were looking for a dinosaur, like that was to me one of the grail type pieces. And that's one where, you know, everybody, when they're, you know, when they're 10 years old, it's like an amateur paleontologist to a certain degree, you learn about it in school. I was pitching so hard to do like a T-Rex first. And that was one that from a from a sticker shock perspective, it's just like, how do you have a Tyrannosaurus Rex? At the same time, like we know one of the two of the T-Rexes that we saw because we see so many deals once we think about a vertical. They just weren't the right T-Rexes. And I didn't know that until I did like the full crash course and was like, you know, zooming with the, the head geologists and paleontologists at the ranch in the Dakotas. And they're explaining to me what's happening and why. And you realize like, listen, A T-Rex that's only 40% complete might not be the one that we want right now, but this this triceratops skull, which is more complete and the bone density is different and the structure of it is different, is one that from an investment-worthy perspective makes more sense. And then I start to wrap my head around it a little bit more effectively, and I could remove the emotion from it a little bit more than I typically would. So we always think about things in in terms of both that hard data and the the intuition and the emotion that's associated with the asset.
3: I wanna jump back to the product from my last question. We talked earlier about there are people on the platform they have you have primary offerings and then there's also this whole secondary market. So there's people trading. We talked about the kind of ups and downs of the market in general and bulls and bear markets. One of the things that Robinhood was in the news lately for, and Coinbase, I guess as well, is their just UX design and kind of what it implicitly or subconsciously tells people to do, incentivizes people to do. How do you think about the moral and ethical and maybe even legal repercussions of designing the product at Rally?
2: Yeah. So it's the right question to ask. And it's one that we think about a lot in terms of product design. We took a lot of what we did early on from Robinhood when it comes to onboarding, because that was just such a unique experience for someone like me who only had an E-Trade and a TD Ameritrade account before Robinhood existed. And part of what those dashboards provide for the old school kind of financial technology, it's intimidating in a way that I'm afraid to open up a lot of that level two stuff and a lot of the trading interfaces that probably do provide the most information and the and the most relevant information for my trades, but at the same time, they don't make a lot of sense to retail investors, myself included. So when we thought about putting this together, we really wanted storytelling to be at the forefront and we wanted to sort of make sure that all the disclaimers, every piece that goes along with the, the financial responsibility and the fiscal responsibility on our side was front of mind. So we didn't go super hard with the gamification or with you know making everything look like it goes up. Or we really did a, did a, a really good job, I think, of laying out a process that kind of pushes somebody through the entire story of an asset and the value proposition before the ability to make that investment. So. You know we work with a lot of really great partners, some of the custody of shares and some of the money transfers, and the amount of disclaimers and and upfront sort of uh, agreements that we have in our app. To me, I thought it was going to be something that that kind of went by the wayside. People just clicked through. But oddly enough, you look at our our metrics and the offering circular, which is you know again, two hundred pages, is a button inside the first version, the first uh, asset portal before you can do anything. It says legal on it that gets clicked as much as the chat button which is something we've never put into the app that we've been working on for a while but we're not 100% sure we're going to move with yet. So it's it's a weird sort of it's a weird concept to think like disclaimers and responsibility up front, but we've been really cognizant of the fact that there are some things that you need to put forward for retail investors to make to make them comfortable with the process and we found that they're more comfortable seeing more of it than seeing less of it at this point so that's how we designed the app as well.
0: This has been awesome Rob. Thanks for taking so much time to explain all this stuff to us if people want to learn more about you or rally where should they go after the show
2: go to uh, rally road rallyrd.com our uh, handle on instagram is rally and then on rallyrd on twitter everybody has my phone number most of our users so feel free to text me directly too if you google my name and phone number i think it's pretty easy to find
3: jay what's your favorite podcast app named after a fruit gotta be apple can you think of any other ones I tried really hard, but I didn't want i didn't want to wait for too long. I didn't want too much dead air. Hey, you know what's worse than dead
0: air? Not getting reviews on Apple Podcasts from your listeners. Oh my gosh, it is the worst. Every day that I wake up and I don't have a new review on Apple Podcasts, I just look up at the sky and I go, ah! I like how the first thing you do when you wake up is to look at Apple reviews. If only I was lying but I'm not, and I'm looking for new reviews for Upside on Apple Podcasts, Eric, and if you are listening to this right now, you could be that person that helps get the day started right. All you have to do is go to Apple on your
3: iOS device or web browser, log in, and leave us a review. Five stars would be nice, four stars would be great. Let's do five stars.
0: Let's do five stars, definitely prefer five stars. Even if you don't use Apple Podcasts as your preferred listening app on an iPhone, please take a moment to rate us there anyway. It helps us bring on great guests. It helps us climb the charts. Our show will get better if you do this very simple act. So please,
3: please.
0: Okay. All right, Eric, we just spoke with Rob Petrazo, the co-founder and chief product officer for Rally. What stuck out to you about this interview talking about fractionalization in rare collectibles? Before we dive into Rally,
3: though, I guess this is really part of Rally, I want to talk more about like some broad brushstrokes, things that we've noticed on upside before, things that I'm particularly excited about going forward over the next 50, 100 years. I think this financialization of everything, this fractionalization of just about anything, is a big macro trend. If you think about kind of how the world, was set up before the ability to fractionalize things became cost-effective with people like Rally, you had to write really, really big checks to buy something, which means that only a certain amount of people could actually buy that thing, which means that the price of that thing likely was wrong whenever anybody bought it. The more transactions that happen to a thing, the more efficient pricing becomes. And there's this thing in finance called a discount for lack of liquidity and you can make the case that all assets in the world are undervalued because that are that fall into that bucket because there is no liquidity for those assets so as we add liquidity to things we one develop new asset classes that investors who are not hyper rich can invest in and diversify portfolios and two probably see asset prices increase around those things to levels that don't make sense historically. So I'm super bullish on stuff on all of the alternative assets spaces. We talked with people like Main Street. We talked to various different kind of crowdfunding platforms here on Upside. And now we have Rally Road, which is just another kind of arrow in that fractionalization, democratization of finance quiver.
0: Ah, you use the word quiver. Good. I see your broad brushstroke and I raise you my own fumbling thoughts through history and finance. (laughs) I believe our history of money is rooted in gold as a good gold standard. We printed dollars that were backed in physical stuff being gold. And in some way, we're fractionalizing the aggregate amount of gold that we had in reserve. And as time has passed by, it seems to me that we've just printed more money than we necessarily have gold and so to have new assets that have innate value because there is scarcity there's actual scarcity there's no longer necessarily dollar scarcity tied to the amount of gold we have to have actual scarcity with this asset makes a lot of sense now the the thing they went to question is yes there is scarcity but scarcity is valuable when there's demand you know there's only a small amount of supply. So 50, 100 years in the future, will there continue to be demand for a Pokemon TSA 10 set? Probably, but also maybe not. So it makes this a little bit more risky, I think, of a type of thing to invest in and peg value to. But I really like what you're saying about the more transactions that there are, the more accurately priced an asset is. I hadn't thought about things in those terms. But I agree. I think this this makes interesting sense to tie your own amount of wealth to. Because there is this like very real known scarcity of the thing.
3: And I think Rally is on the right road. How about that? Wow. When it comes to this path, I think that they went through all of the hurdles to do this in a regulatory fashion that's correct with our current regulations in the United States, as cumbersome as they are. And that set the precedent for a lot of other companies to do this. I think if you are at all interested in this space, and you tend to find your way around the internet, you'll find that there are kind of mini rallies popping up that are more niche, whether they're, I think there's a couple that are focused on wine. There's one that's focused on watches. There's one that's focused on cars specifically. Like there's, there's more and more of these. And I think that's a good sign that there is that demand that you were talking about.
0: In a lot of ways, you know, this, this pegs back to a lot of human history in terms of what we invest in in status. Like a lot of times people would buy art and put it on their walls for the story and the, the conversation starter to talk about why they bought that piece, why it's important to them. And this is a really great, interesting way to diversify into other things that are conversation starters and can uphold status. Something that stuck out to me that I wanted to get your take on, you know, he said the actual underlying mechanics of this are you invest in an LLC that owns and operates one asset. That sounds very similar to the conversations we've had with TriVest, with Assure syndicates. Am I understanding that correctly? As far as I understand it, yeah. I think that special purpose
3: vehicles seem to be making a little bit of a under-the-radar rustle here uh, across what we've been talking about on, on Upside. It's maybe they have the flexibility to do a lot of this financial innovation that hasn't historically existed in funds, or maybe they're just becoming more accessible to those without lawyers,
0: back in my day, you gave someone an SPV and they got upset at you. As a bad joke, <laughs> <laughs> SPVs uh, boom times. Yeah, yeah, I agree. We're we're hearing about it a lot here on the show. It's really interesting to me, and I'm sure it will continue as you and I weasel our way deeper into this rabbit wab- hole. Rabbit hole. <laughs> I thought I saw
3: a rabbit. Um, I do want to go into Rally and kind of their future. Uh, it started as Rally Road, diversified into cars. I guess my one shadow around rally would be, how do you stay true to like where people want to be and not diversify too far? Like Declaration of Independence, super cool. But is there a world in the future where it makes sense to have something not as cool on rally? Is it always just going to be the hyper luxury on rally? Or if we think about like museums, there's that one Picasso in a museum that everyone's like, oh, you got to go see that. Or there's the Mona Lisa in the Louvre. But then there's also just like some ancient Egyptian arrowheads. That's probably not really a thing, but that maybe aren't worth that much. Is Rally also going to facilitate that type of stuff that's smaller? Or is it always just going to stay hyper luxury? And if they do stay hyper luxury, how do they stay core to what it is that they do? Um, they've already kind of differentiated away from cars.
0: Yeah, it'll be interesting to watch and to see, you know, I I like their approach of being diversified because as I think about my own portfolio of investments, it just tickles me pink to be able to look at one dashboard to see all the things that I have like financial interests in, you know, whether it's my brokerage account and my retirement accounts, my banking accounts, uh, even my mortgage So eventually, if Coinbase is in there, I use Wealthfront for all this. Eventually, you know, I would want to tie in these places that have fractionalized assets like Rally Road just to be able to see that in one dashboard. And if I have to integrate 50 different marketplaces for 50 different types of investments, then it's going to be less fun for me visually.
3: Isn't that what your brokerage account is today, though? if you have a bunch of different ETFs, you have a manager out there who, let's say you have an emerging markets ETF, they're going and picking a certain amount of stocks that are in emerging markets and that rolls up in your brokerage account. And then maybe you have another ETF that's focused on non-meat products and they are just going and buying all the non-meat stocks and managing that for you. And by specializing, they're aggregating risk and trying to figure out what the return of that portfolio is gonna be. Whereas in Rally, you don't know the quality of the thing that comes on there based except for what rally has historically put on. So if you have a specialized marketplace, you know, that they're only looking at wine for instance, and they're only putting the best wines on there, or maybe they're putting all wines on there, but there's ratings around those wines. Whereas on rally, maybe there's only one bottle of wine that gets put on there in a year.
0: Yeah. I think, I think the difference is my understanding and my draw towards rally and what it sounds like greeting between the lines is a lot of their users, is I'm buying the story and very very particularly picking the things I'm investing in. It's not that I'm trying to get a diversified set of the different wines because I think that the value of wine, John, is going up. It didn't sound like that was the typical Rally user yet of just saying, like, I want a bucket of this type of thing because I think this category is going to go in this direction. It really seemed very onesie, twosie, I want this because I like this. I want this because I like this. And I want to be able to talk about that and have full visibility into that at all times because that's what I'm interested in buying more so than the shrewd capitalist part of it. It's fun how different we look at that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, in in my way, it's not necessarily like the smartest financial lens of looking at it and probably not where this asset class is going long-term. And my way, is not the probably
3: current way of looking at it. That resonates with, most users of the platform. I do think people like investing in stories until they lose money in stories, though.
0: Easy to invest in stories when you're doing really well and all of your investments are are growing. Well, a lot to unpack here, folks. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode. You can tweet at us at UpsideFM or email us something a little bit longer, hello at Upside.FM. We'd love to hear stories of alternative assets that you're investing in on platforms like Rally. If you've invested in something, we'd love to hear what it is and why. So shoot us a tweet at UpsideFM or email us hello at Upside.FM. And we'll talk to you next week.
1: And here's some necessary legal stuff. Allie Martin and Patrick Bailey developed the When Pigs Fly podcast in collaboration with the Up Company LLC. At the time of this recording, we do not own equity or any financial interest in the companies which appear on the show unless otherwise indicated. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinions of the EW Scripps Company and its affiliates or Generator Management LLC and its affiliates, or any entity which employs us. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. We have not considered your specific financial situation nor provided any investment or legal advice on the show. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. We also want to give a shout out to Claire and Christian of Moonbow. They're the two artists of our intro song, which is so catchy and gets stuck in our heads all the time. So bop over to Spotify or wherever you find your music and give them a listen. And Like the Night by Moonbow is courtesy of Silver Lake Sync.